0: This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast.
1: The Hamilton Bulldogs, along with the Oshawa Generals and the Regina Pats, who are the three clubs that are vying for the 100th anniversary Memorial Cup in 2018, were in Toronto today making a pitch to the committee to try and win the rights to host that tournament. Uh, Michael Andlauer is the owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs. He was there. He joins us now. Michael, thanks for doing this tonight. Uh, You're welcome, Scott. So, uh, how'd it go? Do we win?
0: <laughs>
1: well, uh,
0: I don't know. I we we came out of it feeling pretty good. Um, you know, it, it was nice. It was a great exercise. You know, when, when to do this because uh, obviously we're we're pitching for the city and and uh, you know looking at Steve Taos who's a hometown hero, and and uh, you know doing our best to try to promote Hamilton. Uh, it was uh, it was actually at, at at one point it was actually touching because it was it was. Yeah, we, we touched on on why Hamilton should be the uh, the the right choice. Oh, I got an echo here. Um,
1: okay, why why should Hamilton be the choice? What did you what did you guys pitch? What was what is it about us that makes us the place that the Memorial Cup should land here?
0: Well, we, we talked about a, a bunch of things, but I, I would certainly. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm I'm I've got on a cell phone here. I got a whole a wicked echo here, so I'm trying to I'm trying to. Avoid
1: the echo here. No, worries, um, if if try maybe. Well, you know what? Should we try and call you back and see if we can get a better line? Yeah,
0: maybe a better idea.
1: Okay, Luke is going to call you right back and see if he can uh, get a better line because we lost Michael there for a second. But let me just um, let me just say. So they were down in Toronto, and this is this is a big deal. I just want to go back and reiterate why we're talking about this today because this is a not only a big deal. Time-wise, historical-wise, because it's the hundredth anniversary, but it's a huge event. Hamilton is a city. We we like to bring these events to town. We like to we're talked. We've talked for a while about getting the Great Cup back here. We tried with the Vanier Cup in the fall. It was a complete whiff, failed miserably, and we've got it again next year. But nonetheless, but we like to bring these things to town. We had the Briar a few years back. These are these are events that actually can potentially potentially do great things for this city. And the Memorial Cup is one of those because it is truly a nationwide coast-to-coast kind of event because you do have teams from the furthest reaches of the west to the farthest ends of the east, and so you've got interest from across the country. Let's try again with Michael Anlar. Michael, is that any better?
0: Yeah, so sorry. Perfect,
1: no problem. So (laughs) again,
0: I I was hearing myself. I I didn't like my voice.
1: (laughs) So (laughs) what? Concentrate. (laughs) What is the pitch then that you guys went in there and said? Why should Hamilton win this?
0: Yes, I mean, uh, just to start off, I mean, it was it was a proud day for us uh, uh, with you know know, with uh, you know this whole exercise and why Hamilton? uh, You know, certainly the logistics, you know, being conveniently, conveniently located. You know, halfway between Niagara Falls and Toronto, you know, I, I kind of referred to the 90-minute drive. You know, you, you can encompass Barrie and Oshawa and in upstate New York uh, in 90 minutes. Uh, it was, uh, you know, you get access to a lot of folks uh, who, uh, uh, who who can come to Hamilton to celebrate um the 100th anniversary of the Memorial Cup and, you know, in, in keeping in, in the spirit of the Memorial Cup and in the association with, with the Memorial Cup, our military heritage here in Hamilton, you know, whether it be the, you know, the Canadian War Plane Heritage Museum, uh you know, Battlefield House Museum, the HMCS Haida, or, or, I mean, I forget what else, what else we put on there on that slide, but we definitely emphasize the fact, you know, with the Argyle and Southern Highlanders of Canada and, and the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry—that we 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 are—you know—it it, it, there's a match made in heaven from that perspective. Uh, we talked about the rich history of of, um, of of Hamilton hockey, and that's one of the things that I, I know that we were going to fight against. You know, with, with Regina Pats, we had their first Memorial Cup. It was it was with the Regina Pats, and and obviously Oshawa, uh, which ironically enough, as uh, as afterwards I was having a bite to eat with Steve just to recap it in walks my friend Eric Lindros, and and uh, I knew where, where where he was going. He was uh, he was going to pitch Oshawa. Uh, with, the, um, but
1: uh, was there was uh, Eric Lindros there pitching for them?
0: Yeah, yeah, he came in and kind of hey, what are you doing? Oh my God, yeah, you know, so, so I kind of reminded him that uh, that he actually played in Hamilton.
1: Yeah, uh, he won and, his uh, Memorial Cup here. That's right.
0: You got it. So it was kind of uh, you know it was kind of funny too. To
1: so you couldn't yeah. swing him over to suddenly switch sides and vote for us?
0: Well, we had we had all around, well. No, he was presenting with the Oshawa folks. I
1: right? know. I'm so, saying you couldn't yeah. bring him over to say no. Actually, I won in Hamilton. Yeah. I'm going to now vote for Hamilton. I'm on their committee.
0: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure that. Uh, I, interestingly enough, in our presentation, we actually showed Eric Lindros <laughs> it in 1990. So it was kind of a neat. Um, but uh, yeah, there's all kinds of reasons. And Certainly, but from a pride aspect, uh, you know, we've we've done some really neat things here in Hamilton. Uh, you know, hosting the World Junior Hockey Championships. In '86, a couple of Canada Cups. You know, obviously we refer to the Memorial Cup of 1990, and and also, I mean, we know how to fill a house. And then the two Calder Cup Finals that we had, it, it was a, you know a big house. And and uh, the Outdoor Classic, we know how to put on an event. And that's those are just some of the items and and that we referred to. And you know, obviously the Pan Am Soccer Games with the brand new Tim Hortons Fields. Um, you know, there's a whole element of. Uh, you know, areas where we we are you know we can accommodate um, the um, you know the the uh, the, the Memorial Cup uh, festivities for a, a week long um, you know we talked about uh, uh, um, the fact that some of the festivals that are going on here and uh, and the like so no doubt a great destination interestingly enough we started off a, a, a presentation with a Hamilton tourism video which we edited a bit. Um, and, uh, the, by the end of it, I was, uh, I was ready to give out, uh, real estate cards, you know, cause I, I it was a great, uh, great promotional tool for, for Hamilton and, and, uh what hamilton's all
1: about michael the the people who were sitting on the panel and some of them wouldn't some people would know some of the names but um they're not going to come out of the meeting and say one or any of the three were terrible so you know you're going to hear some kind words regardless from the panel but what did they say that they liked if you heard any of it that they liked about what hamilton presented what what's what did you hear that you got the sense resonated with them
0: yeah, I, I, one of the good things we have is on the panel. A, a, a lot of a lot of the folks on the panel I've, I deal with on a regular basis, um, um, whether it be Scott Moore or Coley Campbell or uh, Al Coates. And um, obviously, there's a, we're, this is an arm's length um, process, and uh, but you could just see the heads nodding. Um, you know. Um, Paul Beaston and on, on on the business side of things, or or some of the things that were mentioned, you could just feel that the acceptance of it, and 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 the fact that it's a second year in the OHL, I, I think they were somewhat surprised with the presentation, in my opinion. And you know, and, and the word "great job" was was mentioned a lot, but obviously that that could be a political. But a, I don't think Coley Campbell is one of the more political guys.
1: I've <laughs> All right. I couldn't help but notice because, I mean, there were a lot of positive things that I heard, comments I heard, but the one thing that really stood out to me, I couldn't help but notice there was nobody from the city of Hamilton who was there. Has a request at this point been made officially to the city to participate or were they not there because we're still waiting to make that step to go to them and see if they'll come on board?
0: No, no, not at all. I, I, I mean, I, I, to me, it was a, it was a forty-five minute presentation, Scott. Um, and to me, it was it was, you know, it was all about meat and and more meat, less sizzle. Um, right out of the gate on the bid pro- process, the Minister of Tourism and Sport for Ontario. Uh, well, she was gracious, gracious enough to, 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 give us a letter of recommendation for Hamilton. Our mayor, uh, was uh, r- r- right there. Um, and, uh, no, I, 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 think from a time standpoint, I think it, it, you know, we wanted to make sure we got the points across. Um, there's, you know, like I said, I know a lot of people on the panel. Um, it was about giving Hamilton the credibility deserve deserved from a, from, from a fact standpoint, Obviously, Steve Stales had to, to talk uh, to the hockey guys with respect to the credibility of, of, of our hockey club and the improvement that we've done year over year and where we're going um, and and what it would take uh, for us to have a Memorial Cup uh, contender next year. And uh, those are the things that, you know, we don't want to waste the mayor's time or, or, or other officials. I mean, if, if, you know, we would have, heck, if if there's you know, it, it, to me, it was—it's it, our, you know—it it was our. We know we're a bit of an underdog so from the standpoint of of uh, our competition and the fact that it, it's a, you know, it's a—it's the hundredth anniversary and it's uh, you know represents history and all. But uh, but uh, that's that that was my call on that, and I'm sure because
1: you've uh, said sure. before you started to interrupt, but you've said before that you would require some kind of this is this is you would be willing to pay some money but that the city would have to be in on this as well so are you confident that if you were to win the bid that the city would then step up do you have some kind of assurances that yeah they will participate in this if and when we win the rights to host this
0: scott i I went about it the one of the good things that we have is is we have a a relatively bigger building than the rest and i was a bit aggressive on our on our uh, forecast this is one of these um, events where the host uh, club makes no money. Uh, the money, the, the proceeds go to the CHL and are split uh, amongst uh, um, you know, the, the teams and, and other uh, initiatives. Uh, so the, the benefit of the host uh, city is the fact that they get their team in the Memorial Cup, uh, the challenge for the, the, the most prestigious junior uh, hockey uh, initiative. So um, uh, um, I forgot my point here, but uh, at the end of the day I, I I've never um, approached the city for anything and I would do it in a way that that was productive for um, for them if I felt that it was it was needed to push us over the top But one of the things that Paul Beeston did uh, articulate is you know this event is a $12 million economic boost to the community. It's a, it's a week-long event, and uh, you know, if you ask the mayor of London or, or whoever else has hosted it, it's, uh, it's it, it, so obviously the city would f- f- would understand that and and go, go for that. But the first step is, is to create credibility, uh, make make the panel understand that Hamilton is definitely the right venue to host a Memorial Cup, more than capable. And uh, we'll take it from there.
1: The city of Oshawa has already locked into offering some in-kind. They've It's about a million dollars, including putting up new scoreboards. But they've basically committed to almost a million dollars. But almost all of it is in-kind services. They're not actually offering cash out of the budget. Could you, if that was what ended up happening here, could that work for this? Or would it actually cost the city actual money out of the budget, do you think?
0: Now we've looked at it in on the in, in kind uh, from a volunteer standpoint and the uh the police and everybody by the way has been extremely uh, cooperative from that perspective uh so we looked at it from that standpoint and we, on, in Oshawa's case um, it wasn't just in kind they spent over seven hundred fifty thousand dollars changing the video boards in order to, for them to qualify um to to get to 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 in you know, to to put a bit in um so that's that's real money that's not in kind
1: could the could first ontario center we just have a minute or two left could first ontario center host the memorial cup as is right now or would there be a requirement that there be changes made to it
0: uh there's no doubt that there would be some requirement that that's what i came out of If if we have any um if there's We'll, we'll see what the, I don't want to. I don't want to say anything that that's going to be detrimental to our to our uh, um, to our bid. So I'm going to wait and see. Uh, but certainly, um, we have to look at, at at the building and and see. You know, we know we can accommodate a lot of people, and that's that. But uh, is it the you know from an ice quality standpoint and from you know, there was two on the panel. were were, were uh, the president of TVA uh, Sports and Sportsnet, um, and then and then there was um, also uh, uh, Coley Campbell and a um, coach from a hockey uh, perspective. So, um, facility-wise, there 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 you know they they are uh, uh, the certain requirements that are that are needed, and I. I like, uh, I, you know, I'm hoping that they'll oversee some of the some of the things that First Ontario has, but it, it may maybe not. Uh, we'll we'll see when when it all when all the dust settles and, and, and uh, they announce
1: it in a couple of weeks. I was just going to ask you. That's the last thing. When will we know who wins this? Is it is it really just within two weeks, or is it at the Memorial Cup?
0: Oh goodness, no! It's 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 within the next two weeks. Okay. I, I think I think initially they were actually going to focus, maybe even bring it up at the All Star. But there's so many things happening this year. It's also the hundredth anniversary of the NHL, so there's the All Star uh, um, uh, festivities are going to be quite. Uh, so I would, I don't think, I don't think it would be wise for them to announce it in the middle of of that cloud over.
1: And for for a, an event as big as this one would be. Even if it's in two weeks, does that give you guys enough time to do everything that you want to do and have it ready for the Memorial Cup? Because some events, Michael, they give you two, three-year, four-year lead time. You're talking about a year. Is that enough time?
0: Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, no, that, that's, uh, that's uh, definitely, definitely enough time.
1: Michael Anlauer, owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time today uh, to do this, and congratulations on the pitch this afternoon. Or this morning, I guess it was. This morning. It seems like this afternoon.
0: It was a long day, but I feel, I feel very proud.
1: Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it. That is uh, Michael Andlauer, the owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs. So we will, a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks, we find out if we're hosting the Memorial Cup. This is going to come down to a bunch of different things. But ultimately, ultimately, it is, well, we know it's between three different cities. And two of those cities have rinks that are the same size, 6,500 people. One of them has a rink that's 17,000 people. Ultimately, I believe that it's going to come down to that. They are going to decide, do they want the big rink that may not be full for every game? In fact, probably wouldn't be full for every game, but the possibility they could put more people in. Do they want the big rink, close to Toronto, close to media? Or do they want a smaller, more intimate rink that will be jammed to the rafters every night but has a limited capacity? That's what it's. I really believe that when it comes right down to it, that will be the decider. And so, and there's nothing more that Hamilton could do about it because we have this rink. There's no other rink for us to go and pitch. So it's it's going to be here in the big rink, or it's going to be somewhere in a small rink.
2: If it was just all about money, which honestly I think it would be, it should be in Hamilton. But to me. The crazy thing is how is Oshawa even realistically in this process still? because at least with Regina you have that that history thing and you can be like, well, it's a it's a nod to the past that we're doing it. but Oshawa, I can't see one good reason why they deserve to be in this bidding process other than we need three
1: teams because three is a nice round number. I would be shocked if Oshawa wins this. I again, I, I believe it is between Regina and Hamilton. I really do because everything pretty much that Oshawa could offer Hamilton could offer. proximity to Toronto for media. Well, Hamilton is as, about as close as Oshawa would be. Uh, bigger rink. you could say Oshawa has more history. Yeah, no doubt they've got they've had a team for longer. they've got more history there. But the fact is, I I really believe that it would probably be between Hamilton and Regina. And Regina is also going to be Regina's 100th anniversary, so there's some overlap. There's a lot to like if you're the Canadian Hockey League about Regina and about its bid. And you know that if you went to Regina, that entire city would be buzzing about the Memorial Cup. It would be a festival. I don't know that that's the case in Hamilton. In fact, I'm sure it's not. You talked about the proximity to Toronto, which is important. But you know what Hamilton has that Oshawa doesn't? Proximity to Kitchener and London, which is where fans would come from, and, and, that Niag- should be and more Niagara important. and Niagara yep. and Mississauga and Barrie and the American, you know Saginaw well, Flint and Guelph. No, for sure, for sure. That is uh, that is not a an insignificant thing. But we have time to talk about this, and we will talk about this. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show, weeknights from seven to nine on AM 900 CHML. A new study, a real estate company has done a study that found. It was actually last week was the absolute best day, but that January is the best month to buy a house. The reason, for whatever reason, you get the lowest price. You save the most money, so says this real estate company, if you buy a house in January. Prices go up after this every month. Month to month, they go up until the middle of the summer. But January is the sweet spot if you are a buyer, not so much maybe a seller. So I thought, you know what? This is a fascinating thing. I have no idea if this is even true. Well, who better to ask than a guy who is a local real estate agent and the co-host of the Hamilton Real Estate Show here on 900 CHML every weekend, Rob Golfe? Rob, how are you tonight? Good, thanks. How are you, Scott? Great. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for doing this. Um, so I'm reading this study that says they've looked at every home sold for six years. Now, this is based out of the Toronto area, I grant you, but there's a lot of homes that are sold there. And yeah. January, if you are buying a house, January is when you want to buy because you will save the most. The prices are at their lowest. Now, it may not be by hundreds of thousands, but you might save $30,000, $50,000. In your experience, does that make sense? Does that ring true?
2: It
3: does, it, uh, just because of the fact that a lot of people are waiting for the spring market. There, there, there are buyers out there, and uh, what happens is just people are just a little bit little more hesitant in buying or a little shy off the um, you know, get-go when it comes to buying a house. And I even, I even think even December also is the same way. So we tell, Pete, we tell our clients, I go, look, if you're thinking of buying a house, like you do it, you know. You know, like December and January, I go before the market really starts kicking in gear because now you're competing with other buyers that are coming into the marketplace and they're starting to look. And as a buyer, no doubt there's a lot of deals uh, to be made. And and we're we're seeing that houses are on the market, uh, you know, a little longer in January. Like we're going, hey, why is this house on the market for still sitting in two weeks? And then all of a sudden. As it, if it goes into February, then you'll see, whoa, then all of a sudden there's multiple offers in February. And even though the house has been on the market for two, three weeks, so you could see the wave of buyers coming into the market uh, afterwards. And it's just, it's it's been like that all the time. Uh, so if you're, a bu- if you're a buyer looking to buy, you know, you got to do it during when everybody else is not looking.
1: Okay. Now, Robert, you got to help me out. I'm going to make you play amateur psychologist or psychiatrist or something. Okay. I don't know what that is. explain to me why we are so predictable and why we seem to be more willing and more eager to buy a house in the spring when we know the prices are going to be up higher, when we know there's going to be more competition, and yet somehow it seems that we get our head wrapped around, well, I have to buy it in the spring. Why is that? Why do we have to wait? I don't know. I don't know if it's because people feel that they want to
3: move in the spring when the weather is good, nobody wants to move in winter weather because um, it just, they, um, and then people put their houses up for sale and they wait for the spring. But then the buyers, I don't know. They, 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 they all come out in a wave at the same time. And it's just, but like the best time to look is when nobody else is looking. Exactly. A buyer. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm
1: saying, yeah, I, I know it, it must. It of course you want to do it in the spring. It's lovely to move in the spring. It's lovely weather and there's no snow. But if it can save me forty or fifty grand, I'll trudge through the snow.
3: Oh, absolutely. So if you look at last year's numbers, and I don't have the stats on me right now, but at last year's numbers, at the beginning of the year, a house in a certain neighborhood could have, you know, was selling average about three hundred and fifty thousand. By the end of the year that that same house that same style house in that neighborhood was probably selling for four hundred thousand That's the difference uh like from from january and then it and then and then as the spring market goes in it starts going up the summer and the fall market and then so now basically time's gone by, but right now, if anybody's looking at buying a house get on get on get on the horse and get looking for it because because as, as February comes in, they're getting, more buyers are coming in they're going to be competing against for that same house.
1: And the oddity of this is that this seems to fly in the face of everything we've ever learned about economics of supply and demand because there's less supply right now, so there should be more demand, which means prices should actually be up right now as opposed to the other way around. It makes no economic sense.
3: I know, I know. and it's And, it's, and this year... We're gonna have another record year because uh, we already know that our, our sales so far in January they're starting to, they're starting to really roll. So it it's, you know uh, again it's I don't I don't understand it's just and and the, another another stat which we find is that we find that the second two weeks of the month seem to be uh, more sales than the first two weeks of the
1: month. All, and every why. month or just in January?
3: Pretty well most months. So I ended up talking. I have a good friend of mine. Um, he owns, uh, you know, several car dealerships. And I asked him. I said, "Do you fa- like how are your sales through the first first half of the month versus the second half?" And they found the same thing that the second half of the month, their sales are a lot greater than the first half. And I have no idea why is that. It just seems that like what people seem to be. Buying more uh, the last two weeks of the month versus the two weeks. So and, is uh,
1: so is the moral yeah. of the story then, Rob? That if you are someone listening right now who is interested in moving or buying a new place, this would be the time for you to get up off your duff and do it before the prices go up. But by the same token, if you're thinking, you know, it's time for me to sell, we got to downsize, we want to move somewhere else, this would be the worst possible time to put your house on the market.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But there's people that have to move. Like we have people we have people moving into uh, old age homes. We have people moving, you know, out of province. We have people, you know, estate sales. So those houses get on the market and those are the ones you're going to get good deals on.
1: So what you're saying, if I can read, you know, what you're kind of between the lines, many of the homes that would be up for sale now would be very motivated to sell. There's probably in a lot of cases, a reason why your house would be up for sale in January, as opposed to waiting for the spring. That's
3: right. You're absolutely right about that. They're 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 putting their house up for sale because the time is now for them to do it because you know they've you know they're clearing the house out. But uh, but yeah, and then you then you have those other people that are waiting for the spring market because they feel that they'll get more money and they and they're right. They will get more money in the spring market. And uh, but the buyers right now they should be looking. If you're thinking of buying a house in the spring, start looking now. And you'll find one, and there's some really good deals out there.
1: And, yeah, and of course, you know what, there, there will be, as you say, fewer homes, so you won't have quite as much choice, but if there's something that you can find that you like, it seems to make a lot of sense.
3: Oh, absolutely. They do come up, though. Like a lot of, there is a lot of good homes coming up for sale, and uh, yeah, you're right, fewer choices, but, but you're also competing against fewer other buyers.
1: Are we seeing in Hamilton now, and I want to sort of morph into this next thing, but are we seeing in Hamilton now a lot more in the way of multiple offers for homes? Because that used to never happen here. Is that happening now a lot?
3: Yes, it is. But but to a certain extent, um, we found, I was talking to uh, an agent just today. Uh, there was a house on uh, right around in the Rosedale area. And I called her up and I said, uh, I saw that she was holding offers. And I said, how did you you know she had thirty six showings on the property, right, and the consumers are getting you know they're getting kind of upset about or or they're getting irritated about this multiple offer situation, like agents holding off offers. and I said to her how how'd you do like you had thirty six people through and she said we had four offers and it was and it was tough. She wasn't getting like you know thirty forty thousand. so it just so we have thirty six people go through, so we know there's thirty six buyers that are looking in that neighborhood. And only four people were willing to come to the table, so because they didn't want to compete. but uh, and then people are are negotiating a little less aggressive right now. Um, but it just uh, but yeah, you have to be careful how you how you put a house up for sale. there's There's no doubt about it because you don't want to scare the consumer, right? And so we do it differently so that the consumer doesn't get scared. We you know we we don't put down, we're holding off offers. For, uh, you know, for one week, we say you know, we give us give us forty eight hours, and then you know, still get people through in those forty eight hours, and then uh, but and we still get the consumer coming through. But it just, um, but but we you have to be very careful because the consumers today are very temperamental. You have
1: to be well, very and and a lot of it I would have to believe has to do simply with I mean the fact that Hamilton house prices and I've talked about this on the show. We've had guests on the show. They are going up and up and up. And I'm reading something this week that was about what is being called the ripple effect. Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation is saying, basically, it's the, it's the same as dropping a, a penny into the ocean. It causes the ripples to spread. And a 1% average increase in Toronto homes is causing a 2 to 3% increase in Hamilton homes, just because, I guess, of, again, of the supply and demand situation. It, it's, it's making it, I would think, Rob, at this point, very difficult for a lot of people who... 15 years ago might have thought, you know what, I'll, I'll get my first job. I'll finish school. I'll buy my first house in Hamilton. It's getting very difficult for them to get in.
3: Oh, it is. It is. And uh, like for people getting out of the market, this, this is a great time. Uh, but for people getting in, it is tough. And what's happening is um, you know, people are, you know, are buying houses in areas that really wasn't their first choice, but they need to get into the marketplace so, and that's, and that's, they just slowly grow, and so every five years they'll do their move, and they'll go into an area that wasn't, wasn't the preferred area of, uh, of Hamilton, but, but they're slowly, you know, they, they have to get in somehow. And if they can't get into buying in, anything in Hamilton, then they start moving towards the Niagara area, and it just, so now everybody's just getting further and further away from their jobs, so now their commutes are long, and that's becoming, uh, very stressful for people, so it's it's, it's becoming very tough.
1: Well, we you, I mean, honestly, we used to laugh at the Toronto people, some of them anyway, who would move yeah. to Hamilton and say, "Oh, you got to travel an hour to get to your job in Toronto every day." I, that's a crazy commute. I'd never do that. Well, where do you live? Well, I live in, as you say, Niagara on the Lake, or I live in Brantford <laughs> or wherever. Well, it's not. We're doing the same thing now. We're we are being. We're having a lot of people be pushed out, and I'm wondering how how long can this possibly go on for i mean as an agent as a guy who looks at this market are we heading for a point when suddenly there's going to be a day we wake up and the prices start to go down because people just can't afford it anymore well
3: be like i was just at a conference and there's like, usually every year sometimes they say there there's a correction every five to seven years so some corrections are like you know it could be like you know, a 10% correction. And, uh, and then sometimes you get those big, heavy ones like the, uh, like the early 90s. We had a little correction in 2008, which, you know, everybody tightened their belt, and, you know, there was a little bit of a, uh, a correction there, but it, it, it didn't really affect uh, too many people in the job force, uh, not that I, I, I know of. But, um, but there was a little bit of a correction, and, and it was both six months, eight months, and then, back, then we went back on track and started climbing again. So, if there is a little correction it it'll be it'll be a, a small corrections as time goes on um as long as everything goes smoothly and uh uh with the economy and the interest rates will be i mean like we're paying two and a half percent interest rates i mean you know I'm, you know people that's cheap even if i mean you know we were paying thirteen fourteen percent interest yep. rates in the in the nineties i mean that we're looking at that oh my god like like even a half a point up is still cheap but so but people get scared of that. Because we, we've been having low interest rates for such a long time, so when the Bank of Canada raises the rates, people get, "Whoa, my God, it's a half a point!" But really, that's still nothing compared to what we've been used to in the past. And um, but 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 we will get little corrections as time goes on. But 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 again, it'll just start climbing back up again. And and so if you're if you're buying, if you're selling and buying during a correction, you, you're balanced out if you're buying in a correction like when the market, you know, adjusts itself, then you you'll actually do do good. And and if you're selling and not buying back into the market, well then you know, you probably, oh darn, I should have sold last year. I would have done better, but but that's just the way it goes. It's like anything else.
1: Rob, we so. have a minute left, but honestly, uh there are a lot of people because the house prices have gone up so much in this city there are a fair number of people, I would guess, who paid more for their house than they had expected or wanted to, but if you want to get in, you've got to pay a little bit more, and that's just the reality. How many people, what percent of that you've seen or that you've heard from other agents, if we did go up by a percent or two in interest, if they did bump it up by a percent or two, how many people would suddenly find themselves in real trouble because they are really, to get into the market, have stretched themselves to the absolute max?
3: Yes, there would be. Uh, probably uh, quite a few people uh, probably would h- hurt by that. They would have to find a way to cut back on something else because people are financing their cars or leasing cars, and yeah, one or two points could could affect everybody. So that's why they 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 that's why they've got that um, adjustment where they uh, qualify you at I think uh, four point six five or five four point six five percent versus. Two and a half percent. So when there is that adjustment, they know you can afford it because they pre-approved you based at that interest rate. So they, because so they're they're kind of expecting a little bit of an interest uh, increase.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, listen, you have to have. We saw what happened down in the states when the this whole situation completely collapsed because people oh, wow. couldn't afford to pay anywhere. We don't want to be in right. that. Uh, we don't want to be in that mess.
3: No, no. And, and you know what? They had the, the big mess. There was a subprime markets where they offered them. You know, next to nil interest rates in the first two years, and then all of a sudden the interest rates jumped up to six to seven percent. So these people were getting, they they were conditioned to pay hardly anything on their mortgage payments, and then all of a sudden when the when they they had to balance out the interest rates, they uh, they they couldn't afford them, and and that hurt and all of the U.S. when it came to mortgages, and uh, so the Canadian go- uh, government there. The Canadian banks are regulated, so they, they will watch and learn from the mistakes that the U.S. made, so they're they're not doing anything like that here.
1: You can hear more from Rob Golfe every Saturday morning, 9 o'clock, with Rick Zamprin, right here on 900CHML, the Hamilton Real Estate Show. Rob, appreciate the time tonight. Thanks for doing this.
3: Thanks, Scott. Have a good night. Take care.
1: If you, and let me just reiterate what Rob said there, if you are in position that you are at the point in your life when you are looking to get out of the housing market, maybe get a condo, maybe move into a retirement home, maybe just downsize. You are absolutely golden. You are golden right now. With the way the Hamilton real estate market is going, if you could sell at as at the way things are going right now and get something much smaller or much less expensive, you are golden. If you, however, are one of those people who is coming out of university, who's got a job, who's just gotten married, whatever it is, and you've decided, you know, I think it's time to buy our way into the market, man, what a, what a frightening proposition. Quite honestly, right now, you want to get in, you want to begin gaining equity, you, want, you, you, you know the house prices probably will continue to go up, so you want to say, let me get in, let me get on the escalator so I can start being part of this. But man, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, what you would have paid for a house compared to what you have to pay for a similar or much less house right now, it's staggering. It's staggering. Every every Saturday, I look at the real estate section in the paper and am inevitably, unfailingly blown away when I look and I, we play this game every Saturday. We're sitting around the table, having a coffee in the morning. We look at the picture and we guess what the price of that house is. And honestly, I should probably know by now that it's going to be more than I expect. And I'm under every single time. Some of them by a staggering amount where you look and you go, that house is up for that much. It's a different, different real estate world out there right now in the city. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I wanted to bring on my next guest. I wanted to talk about this next thing, and I wanted to do it for a little while because let's be honest, we hear, I would guess, on an almost daily basis, we will hear a story, a report, something about some new study. If you simply go on Google, type in the word study, and then hit the news feed, there are pages after pages after pages of stories about new studies new scientific studies new research new data new whatever that will tell us things that we absolutely must believe wholeheartedly because why science has told us they are true some of these things you're going to look at you're going to say wait a second that doesn't make any sense at all how is it possible that washing my hair with motor oil is going to cause better roots that will have my hair have more luster. Well, science says so. Well, okay. But we believe it because we read it and it's in science journals and scientists have said it's true and the data backs it up. Question is, is this stuff that we are reading all true? Well, let me tell you something. Uh, There is a piece that I wrote or uh, that I was reading as I was going through this saying, is Canadian research falling prey to predatory journals. One of the authors of that piece is Timothy Caulfield. He is a Canadian research chair in health law and policy, a professor in the faculty of law uh, at the University of Alberta. He's been the research director of the Health Law Institute at the university since 1993. He's a writer. He is obviously a health policy expert. And my favorite part of this whole resume, he is the author of Is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything? which I think is just the best name ever for a book. He joins me now. Uh, Timothy, thanks for doing this tonight. Well, good evening. L- let me go there before we go anywhere else. Is in fact Gwyneth Paltrow wrong about everything? Cuz my guess would be yes.
2: She's wrong about an awful lot. And, you know, she's been wrong a lot recently. I don't know if you've been following her in the news. More ridiculous health advice. But you know, it relates to what we're talking about about tonight because there is so much health information out there you 're hearing it from celebrities you 're hearing it from you know health gurus, uh, but you also hear from from reputable sources you know from from the research community and you would hope that that last category would be accurate would be right and that we could ro- rely on it but unfortunately that 's not always the case
1: so let 's go through this because it 's going to take a few minutes to get through this, but I am Joe Public, and I am sitting at home and I hear a story or I read a story or I find out about a story online that says X is now the new drug that's going to cure me or doing this is going to help my health or doing this is going to hurt my health. And I see that it's backed up by peer review, it seems, uh, research in some scientific publication that has a really scientific name laden with gravitas. And I say, well, must be true. Is that not the case?
2: Well, I guess it depends on your definition of true, also. Look, and I, I want to, at the outset, I want to say, I'm a science geek. I love science, and I really think that that's, you know, the way forward. We need good, trustworthy science to make decisions on. And that's one of the reasons I'm so frustrated by all the forces that twist good science. And I, I call it the hype pipeline, right? There are all these these forces that twist what we hear about science from, you know, bias that creeps into the laboratory, and we're all, we all know that happens, to press releases from institutions that kind of add a little, you know, more of a twist, and there's research to show that that is absolutely the case, that there's a lot of hype in press releases that come from, from universities and from research institutions. And then it gets to you guys, right? It gets to the media, and then there's a little more of a twist there. Uh, but then there's this new uh, problem, and it's relatively new. I think it's probably intensified over the fa- past five years. There are these journals that have been called dubbed predatory journals, and what they basically are are journals that are popping up really all over the world uh, that are not that reliable, not that reputable. And they don't have a robust peer review process. You pay to, have, uh, to get your uh, publication in there, which is unfortunately becoming the norm with open access pub- publishing.
1: Let's stop for a second. What is open access publishing, for even for legitimate stuff?
2: So uh, what happens often even for the you know legitimate publications often there's now a publication fee because everything's online now and these journals need money to to survive. That in itself you know un- is unfortunate but it's becoming more common and can be okay if there's a good independent editorially editorial board, if there is a good clear peer review process, right? And if everything is transparent um, you know that uh, can still be an absolutely fine publication. Unfortunately, these predatory journals are often don't have that. They have an editorial board that's suspect. The, pr- the peer review process is not ideal, and the goal really is to get papers through and get and get them published. And it's problematic on a whole bunch of levels. You know, I I'm I'm not making this up. I get like five, six, seven, eight, sometimes twelve invites from these journals a day, right? Uh, saying you know submit your paper, your study to this journal. And I remember the first time I started getting them, I was kind of, you know, wow, I uh, have you know, I <laughs> it as a compliment, hey, someone's recognized my fine work and wants me to submit. Uh, so if you're a young researcher, you could get tricked by that, right? They look legit, they act legit, but unfortunately, they're less than ideal.
1: Okay, and, and the other thing about this that I found really interesting from the piece you wrote, uh, there were a couple of those, Maureen Taylor and Karen Palmer wrote it with you, that a lot of these, what we call predatory journals, will carry with them names that are, A, they sound really good. They sound really serious, like they have a lot of backing behind them. But the second part is they may also be very close to other ones, which are more legitimate journals. So even if you saw it in passing and you were familiar with one of them, it might just gloss over your eyes and you might miss it entirely. that it's not the same thing.
2: That, that's right. and I've actually almost fallen prey to that when I' was referencing stuff. so I'll make a, I'll make up a journal. let's say there's a uh, or, you know high profile journal called Geography Nature. Uh, and they'll they will create a journal called Geography Nature International or something like that, right? And so it's'll look the same. it'll be kind of have the same feel to it. and so you'll think they're uh, they're affiliated. Now it's also really important to point out that that these a lot of these journals fall on a continuum. There's no real clear cut. These are good journals and these are bad journals. Unfortunately, the whole whole field is is becoming increasingly cloudy. Uh, so you know I I think that we need some type of independent entity that sort of evaluates um, evaluates these journals on an ongoing ba- basis, and that journals have to become you know members of this entity, something that we can rely on. As you may have heard, and we refer to it in the article, there was a gentleman named Beals, and, and Beals used to put together a list of all the predatory journals. He's a library uh, professor in the United States, and it was called the Beals List of Predatory Journals. Every, I used to use it frequently. He has since taken that down, because it was just, I, we don't know why, it's a little bit of a mystery, uh, There's speculation that it was just too much pressure on him and too much harassment, so now we don't even really have an up-to-date resource that we can turn to to get a sense, in a quick way anyway, to get a sense of what's a predatory journal and what's not a predatory
1: journal. Pulling a line from the piece that you wrote online, uh, it's in healthydebate.ca, by the way, and I'll actually, when, we go, when we're done our interview, I'll post it on the Scott Radley Show Facebook page so people can read it because it's fascinating. Um, here's a line from it. A 2015 study found that predatory journals published a whopping 420,000 papers in 2014. So what strikes me about that is I can't imagine that there could possibly be that much good solid science done over the course of a year. I know people are working on stuff all the time, but not only to whether or not those things are real, to have the amount of people who could study those and check those and make sure those are legit, it's an, it, that seems like an astronomical number.
2: Yeah, you're you're absolu- absolutely right. And, and as you probably know, the Ottawa Citizen has done this. Uh, people have submitted fake papers you know, that are just junk to these journals, uh, and they accept them uh... and the other uh, other people have become uh... tom speer a, a journalist at the ottawa citizen uh... made up a sort of fake cv and became an editor of one of the journals um, so there's a whole bunch of you know very suspicious stuff going on uh... and so this is a really big problem when you think about how important good science is and and increasingly i think becoming you know it's in today's world we need good independent science that we can rely on uh, when you so this is a big problem, right? When you have all of these journals, you know, clouding, uh, making that very difficult to determine what's the good research and what's the bad research.
1: So tell let me let me try and follow the chain then, and you tell me where I go off the rails if I do at all. Um, I write a paper. I'm doing something. I, I'm going to assume first of all that most of the people who are writing these are actually doing some kind of science. That it's not mostly just completely made up junk. But anyway, I write something. I go to one of these journals that I can pay to have my p published and have some credibility attached to it I then send out a press release saying I've been published in this peer-reviewed journal the media me I am in here and at the paper and everywhere else we see it we don't have necessarily a PhD in whatever science it is so we see this thing that sounds impressive it's got the backing it's got the credentials And so we say, all right, that's worth a story or at least it's worth mentioning. And then we write it or it gets somewhere and it gets into the conversation and suddenly now people's ideas about what is good science or not is affected. And it could, I'm guessing as I get to the end of this, affect your decisions about your health, about decisions you make around foods or whatever else. The whole thing, it sort of snakes its way through and suddenly it's a part of the conversation and accepted as fact when there may be nothing to it.
2: Yeah, that's a pretty good summary of how this can play out, unfortunately. Uh, and it can, in some ways it gets worse, right? Because it, because just having it out there, let's say you don't even have a press release and you don't even have it, you know, that kind of push from your, from your institution. Once it's online, people will search and find it, right? And then if you think of things like vaccination controversy or, or climate change or strange, you know, detox remedies or something like that, once it's out there and people are referring to it, it's awful hard to pull it back. And once that myth is started and, and history tells us this, it takes on a life of its own.
1: And people then become confused and, don't, and they may see con- conflicting reports and don't know which one is actually true.
2: That's right. And there's interesting research that says that when the public, and this is completely understandable, when the public sees conflicting messages around health they become confused, obviously, but also they start to shut out that information and just ignore it altogether, which is you know, a very disappointing result.
1: So here's where it gets really tricky, though, that I don't know what the answer is, and I'm hoping maybe you can offer some insight, but I'm not even sure if you can because it's such a complicated thing. I am a member of the media. I get a press release sent on my desk that talks about this. But all the background to this seems to check out. I check and there is in fact a scientific or there is a journal by the name. So I say, okay, that exists. And it says that it's peer reviewed. The amount of work that I would have to do to go and check with all the scientists and check on their background and their references and everything else seems like I've got a choice. It's not worth it to go down every single rabbit hole or I just report it. But it, it's made it so that it's very, very, very difficult to actually determine what is in fact true.
2: Yeah, you're right about that. And I think that there are things that, that the media can do. They can, they can and, and increasingly I've, I've seen this happen, so this is a good thing. You know, they can check with some, another researcher who's independent from the study, right? Because often those researchers will immediately see something wrong with the method or uh, see something wrong with the journal, uh, so that's one one route, you know, get get an independent voice. But I also think that that we do need some kind of of independent assessment of these journals. Because the other thing I don't want the a- other answer isn't to only look to these high impact journals, you know, Nature and Science, New England Journal of Medicine. Because I think it's a shame because some of these studies, you know, aren't going to fit in those journals, and it leads to this love affair with high impact, which has other problems associated with it, with people inflating the importance of their work, etc. To be able to get into those journals. So I think we need to have some kind of independent assessment of journals so people like you, the media, and, and the public, and, and to be honest, even other researchers, right, uh, can feel comfortable that they are referencing a good source. Now, what I used to do is I used to go to the Beals list, uh, if I saw a study, just to make get a sense of whether it was a predatory journal or not. You know, I'll look at, at the website. I'll get a sense of what other kind of papers that they've published. Um, but it is time-consuming, and not everyone has that time.
1: And it must be injurious to the scientists that are doing real work, that their stuff gets tangled up with these things.
2: Yeah, for sure. that is, That is the case. And, and, you know, now I've talked to colleagues, actually, who have been hooked by one of these publications, and they invited me to be part of a special issue uh, on a particular topic. I won't say what, what the topic was. Uh, and I said to them, hey, you know, this, this journal, this publisher is quite suspect. And they were already well, you know, the horse was out of the out of the barn, and, you know, they've already lined up um, uh, other individuals to be part of the special issue, and they were forging ahead, right, because that's, you know, they've, they've you know, sunk costs kind of thing. So it, it is easy to get wrapped up in this uh, and to pull good researchers into the game.
1: So, Timothy, the, the, the ultimate question then becomes, um, Joe Public, people who are listening today, when they next see something that says there is a study that says whatever, how do they possibly Figure out whether it's legit or not, I, and I'm not talking about the people in the scientific community. I'm not even talking about the media. The average public person, how do they determine?
2: So I, I think there's a whole bunch of things you can do. First of all, I, I always one piece of advice I always give is never rely on one study, <laughs> no matter what it says, no matter how exciting it is. You got to wait for a body of knowledge to come around. Whether you, you know, no matter what you're talking about, whether you're talking about is breakfast good for you or some kind of stem cell study, you know, wait for a body of knowledge uh to emerge but but there are things that you can do you know you can look at how big was the study you know was did the study have, was it more than just an observational study you know did they do more than just watch people uh and the other thing that they can do is get a sense of you know what kind of team was involved in in, in the research there are things that people can do uh to get a sense of how how valuable a, a study is but you know what i hope people keep looking at the, <laughs> those newspaper articles about research because it's never been more important
1: As for your book, I gotta say you alluded to something off the top. We haven't talked about it on the show because, for quite frankly, I um I haven't really been sure how to do it without getting myself in trouble with the CRTC. (laughs) I know Uh, where this is going. (laughs) Gwyneth Paltrow's newest idea, which apparently she's selling thousands of these things, was that I'll leave it. I'll I'll be very general here, but she was selling jade eggs that she was telling women they should be sleeping with them tucked into places that you wouldn't normally think to put an egg. I'll leave it that generally.
2: Um, gynecological health.
1: That, yes, and um, <laughs> it, it's it's all very... But here's the point. There are apparently thousands of these things in circulation now because her website has sold out of them. There are people who believe this stuff because somebody like Gwyneth Paltrow says, no, it works.
2: Yeah, I think this, this is actually very relevant to what we're talking about because uh, i, I found I followed this story very closely, uh, and I actually thought it was a good news story at first because Gwyneth came out with this ridiculous bit of advice, and very quickly. Uh, you know, the media jumped on it and said this is scientifically inaccurate. We there were some the great commentators from from experts and scientists in the U.S. Jen Gunter wrote this fantastic piece on it. She's a gynecologist in the U.S. It does great work. So I thought fantastic, great response. But you know what? It still sells out. Right, <laughs> it because it's Gwyneth out. Paltrow.
1: People right. believe in her.
2: Yeah. yeah, And it's partly, I think, because there is a certain, you know, people are confused. They don't know who to listen to about this stuff. And, and Gwyneth is selling a brand as much as she is selling facts, right? And so people are attracted to that.
1: Timothy Caulfield, really appreciate the time tonight. Thanks for explaining. It's a complicated topic, but I appreciate you explaining it.
2: Well, thanks for having me on.
1: That is, uh, it is a fascinating thing. I will put the story up on, the, uh, on my Facebook page, Scott Radley Show Facebook page. As for the Gwyneth Paltrow thing, Again, I don't want to go into a ton of details because it really is one of the most bizarre things and uncomfortable things to talk about. But she is selling eggs made out of jade, things shaped like eggs of jade that apparently there are, in her estimation, benefits to women putting them places and I'm not going to go into it all because quite frankly, it's so bizarre that I can't even begin to, and I will get in trouble. But, um, but people believe it, people will believe it. And that's exactly what we were talking about. If, if, if you will believe that I got to believe you'll believe almost anything. And that's where these kind of predatory journals and the stories that come from them become difficult. How do you know what to trust? Are vaccines dangerous? Are vaccines healthy? Well, I tell you what, depends on who you talk to because we've seen studies that have been conflicting and depends on which side you've decided to go on. That's what you believe. I will post this story during the break. You can go and look it up. Scott Radley Show Facebook page if you're interested. The
2: Scott Radley Show, weekdays from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.